Welcome to the Friendly Meeples Lounge, the podcast all about board games, new and old, weird and fun, and our thoughts and feelings about their playability. I'm your host, Jen Flores. And I'm your host, Chris Ingold. And today we have a very, very special guest with us. We hinted last time that we would have someone special for this episode of the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself, Karen? Oh, my goodness. I'm Karen, and um, I'm known for loving a certain game. (laughs) Should I mention it? Is it in the title already? (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. We'll get to what the game is shortly. But Karen uh, is very famous in our community. We absolutely love having her around. There are many amazing things Karen has done. Chris, would you like to elaborate a little more? Well, I think we'll pick up because last week we were celebrating our BunnyCon convention and BunnyCon has been the most resilient event in the Melbourne Meeples calendar during the pandemic through a, a little bit of luck in terms of when it's hit in some of the gaps. It's been one of the most beloved events and I think it's probably the fastest selling event in the Melbourne Meeples calendar year. It sells Absolutely. faster than MeepleCon. People rush to get to it. It's one of the most friendly, lovable, cuddly events a board gamer could possibly hope for uh, in the year, uh, despite all the pressures of a sort of family holiday because it's happening over Easter. But BunnyCon wasn't always a Melbourne Meeple's event. BunnyCon was created by Karen. So before we get into any kind of debates that might get heated around certain games and, and certain other games, tell us a little bit about how you started BunnyCon. Well. I'd been uh, living and working in the US and I was attending a lot of conventions over there for several years and I knew that that travelling to all those conventions was going to stop and I thought when I come back and be permanent in Australia, I wanted to start a convention because someone said, why don't you start your own? And so I looked for a gap in the calendar and I thought Easter was good and it wasn't until I found the logo that I named it BunnyCon. And then BunnyCon was taken as a domain name, so that's when it was Oz BunnyCon, but everyone refers to it as BunnyCon, you know, so that's why there's confusion about it. I actually found the other URL of what BunnyCon is in the States, which, um, if you're not familiar, is the Playboy Bunny Convention, which I thought was absolutely hilarious because <laughs> one of my friends messaged me and she goes, this convention you're running the website doesn't seem to be about board games. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Went and had a look and was like, oh. <laughs> I don't remember it being Playboy back then. I forget what year it was. Um, it was just some innocuous thing, but I couldn't get the domain. So that's when we switched to OzBunnyCon and I grabbed all the, all the socials, you know, I grabbed that for all the socials and stuff. I can't even remember how many years I did it. We might have to take some advice from the um, Tasmanian uh, Football League because there is a uh, on, on the the non board gaming side of our of our sort of national uh, heritage. There is a a big beef coming because Tasmania's now got an Aussie rules football team, and of course, the first thing is they're going to be called the Tasmanian Devils. But wait, Warner wait, Brothers has the rights to that. Yeah. It's just been just been announced from 2028. Um, but we don't know what oh, it'll be called. No. But if it's called the Tasmanian Devils, then they have to get the license <laughs> off Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers own the trademark rights to the Tasmanian Devil in the US. So there's a little bit of like politics about how they might get that back a bit, a little bit of shock from the government. I think they kind of secretly knew that. So we could piggyback onto it. 
a lot of politics around the the Hobart or the Tasmanian football team. I just spent a week in Hobart with my sister who lives down there and all of them are screaming about how much they don't want this new stadium to be built because they already have multiple stadiums down there that they rarely ever fill. No one in Tasmania cares about the football except the Premier and they're like, why can't we have more hospitals? Why can't we have more shopping centres? Why can't we have more aged care facilities? None of us want a freaking football team. So I'll be interested to see how that one plays out for sure. Ooh, there is quite an audience that goes down to the visiting games that goes on there, but then that's the thing, they're not every week. So that'll be the million-dollar question when it runs. However, the relevant thing here is, is that we obviously want BunnyCon for Australia because BunnyCon's a Melbourne thing first and uh, a festival of um, glamour models second. Obviously, <laughs> internationally, you know, kind of we, we, we've released the board game conventions because in the rest of the world at Easter, spring's coming, or in a, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. So they're all like celebrating and eating chocolate and stuff. We're sitting there going, summer's over. Let's play board games. So BunnyCon is <laughs> a naturally Australian thing. So I'm, I think if we sort of keep close, much as you might, uh, might not be as into sort of Aussie rules as I might be, Jen, uh, if we keep close to what's going on in, in the football league, and let's see if we can get some legal tips <laughs> and steal back our BunnyCon domain name on the shirt tails of the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> so we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so getting back to BunnyCon, the first year was uh, 2015. And mm-hmm. uh, there was about 75 to 80 attendees in at Wadham House in Mount Waverley. And then nice. in the following year, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and with my background in events and stage management, the first thing I did was went and measured up everything and I tried to figure out how many tables I could fit in. That's how it started and that's how I knew how many tickets I could sell. And my aim was to have tables not too close to each other. There was always room to move around. The following year it was uh, the building next door, the community centre, and that was a great space. That was really good. I think we were there for a couple of years. I lost, then I lost track. And then I was getting, I was starting to feel it was too much for me and spoke to the folks at Melbourne Meeples and um, handed it over basically because I'm, I thought I'm, the young ones need to run this, not me. I'm, a bit, I'm getting a bit at the retirement end of my life and I thought it was too much. So I ran it by myself, yeah. And you know, guys, know wow. how much work it is. It is so you know much work. I do not believe you were doing all of that on your own. Yeah. That's and insane. We would have the flea market, and um, but I wasn't dealing with um, sponsors or resellers or anything like that. Just kept it. Just come and play board games, and that was it. Chance to come and play your board games, and I had a little library of games. We are extremely grateful to you for starting it out because BunnyCon is definitely my favourite con during the year. I love MeepleCon. It is the bigger convention, but I love the nice, quiet, you know, just chill out of BunnyCon. It's really awesome seeing how excited everyone gets about the raffle as well. That that always makes me smile. I love how community-minded everyone is there as well. Like everyone's just... I don't know. It feels really open and everyone's open to helping each other and, yeah. And we definitely had some very good board game weather this year, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the new venue at the Glen Waverley Bowls Club, it's really it, – it feels very warm and approachable and easy. It's just very comfortable there. I think yeah. it's a really great venue, yeah. I think warm is the word, yeah. 
it's got such a kind of there's such a lot of heart and the, the guys that run it you know the team that sort of support it and even just just the feel the ambience of it everything just exudes kind of comfort and warmth and welcoming it's not kind of oppressive like a big convention hall uh we've done been very lucky with that and we have asked them because they say are you coming back and say yeah we want to come back could you just stretch it on the inside because we've got more people <laughs> want to come so if you could just like make go like doctor who style and sort of make it bigger on the inside than the outside um and i've said they'll try yeah well so yeah, we'll see where I don't we are know next year be able to, but, you know <laughs> we can, we can always, always ask and, th- and that's something that you lose. If you go to a bigger venue, you sometimes lose that uh, um, comfortable feel. Yeah. It is fantastic. So what have you been playing this week, Karen? Uh- <laughs> I hardly play any board games. In fact, my board gaming hours have reduced to I play at BunnyCon, I play at BorderCon and at MeepleCon. And I can call myself now a daytime gamer. I don't play at night anymore. It's all, it's, it's all too hard. I've just tried to simplify it to what suits me. So what have hey. I been playing lately? I haven't played anything since BunnyCon. Nice. What's last you but- play, what did you play at BunnyCon? <laughs> um, well, of course, we played Agricola. We mm. like to play, try and play that every day. We also played Concordia. I'm trying to remember. See, that's the other problem. I can't remember what I played. played a couple of new games that I can't remember the name of, but one of the, um, which is absolutely no help on a podcast, saying I can't remember the name of the games <laughs> I played. Uh, we played Tuscany, you know, the expansion to Viticulture. Mm. And what's the other big game we played? Oh, we always love to play a game of Wizard, which is a trick-taking game where you have to predict how many tricks you're going to win. We love that. We laugh and laugh and laugh. I haven't played that one. Oh, it's so much fun. <laughs> I had my very first introduction to uh, trick-taking games through Chris, actually, as much as I have a massive collection, like Rod and I between us, although I think you definitely dwarf my collection quite significantly. <laughs> um, yeah, we Rod and I have about 250 board games as well. I don't think we actually have any trick-taking games in that collection at all. Well, I, I grew up with card games and trick-taking games, so I've always loved them. And we just have so much fun playing Wizard. You have to predict how many tricks you're going to win each round. And in the first round, you have one card. In the second round, you have two cards. In the third round, you have three cards. And you build up to could be 10 or 12 cards, depending on the number of players. And each time, you have to predict how many you're going to win. So you, it, it's just funny because you're trying to hold uh, – uh, there's a – there's a card that always wins the trick, a wizard, and there's a joker that loses the trick. So you have to play. You have to time when those are playing, and you never. Uh, it's not till the last round that all cards are in the deck are in play. There's a couple of variations on wizard. I forget. Um, uh, hell, uh, people who are listening will be yelling out these names. Oh hell, or <laughs> hell no, or something. It's been around for decades. Um, oh hell, I think. Yeah, there's quite a lot of games in the trick-taking space. I think there's a whole guild on BGG just for trick-taking. I would not be surprised. Because you'll own a pack of playing cards, Jen. Mm-hmm. And the moment you own a standard pack of playing cards, you all automatically have hundreds of trick-taking games because that's where they came from. But when we were growing up as kids, we used to play a lot of scoring whist. And I, I think 
Oh, Hallam Wizard, although I don't know Wizard itself. I'm assuming from what your description is like backwards scoring Wist because we deal that and you deal 13 cards each in that particular type of Wist. Uh, you guess how many you're going to get. You're not allowed for them to all add up to 13, so somebody has to get it wrong. Play the hand, go down 12, 11, all the way down to one at the end of it. And that was our student game when we were at university. Yeah. We just played that every night religiously. Mine was Spoons. Spoons? Spoons. So Spoons is the game where you have a pack of cards and for every four players you add in another pack of cards. So I've played Spoons with like 30-something players. It's very, very, very funny. And everyone sits around in a circle and you have one less Spoons than the number of people playing the game in front of you. You have to play with at least four players because otherwise it's just it's a bit silly. But what you're basically doing is you start with somebody who is the dealer and they start with four cards and then you're trying to get either runs of four, so one, two, three, four, four of a kind, something like that, and you basically pick up a card, figure out of the ones that you've got which ones you want to keep and pass one card along. So you keep going through the deck, just looking at your cards, passing one along. So everybody ends up, sorry, you start with, everybody starts with four in their hand and you basically just go through the deck of cards, passing them one by one until somebody gets a run. And once someone gets a run, they have to lean in and grab a run or a collection of four. They have to lean in and grab a spoon. It doesn't matter at that point if you have anything in your hand the person who doesn't get the spoon loses. So the second you see someone grab for a spoon, you dive in and grab for a spoon. So there are no winners, there are only losers. And I absolutely love it. And it's very funny. And when you play with 30 people, it is an absolute hilarious crap fight and dive. And especially when you add in lots of beer and tequila to that mix, it it just becomes absolutely hilarious. But on that note... What game are we talking about this week? Well, we're talking about a couple of games because we could talk about one game in particular, but by talking about a couple of games, we're going to make the conversation more interesting. So we're going to talk (laughs) about games by the master of the worker placement game, uh, Mr. Uwe Rosenberg, who has taken the skill of not only designing great worker placement games, the ones that are considered to be the best in the world, but also the competition of how many worker placement spots can I realistically put in a single game and still have it be really, really, really good via a game called The Feast for Odin. We're going to go back in his catalogue to his most famous game, a game called Agricola, and a game that was widely considered its follow-up, and is its follow-up, called Caverna. Two, on paper, very similar games. Looking at them across the table from a distance, if you didn't know them, very, very similar games. Potentially quite different games. Um, And the reason that we're going to talk about these games is, A, because they're phenomenal. Both Agricola and Caverna are fantastic games. Agricola in particular, because it came first, is one of the most seminal board games in the modern board gaming era. Um, Caverna builds on it. The other reason I'm going to talk about it is because Karen is Agricola's greatest fan. <laughs> Absolutely. The Agricola queen. <laughs> so I think on this note, before we start and before we make this conversation interesting, Karen has said, what... Tell us maybe about, if you can remember, even the first time you played Agricola and what draws you back to it again and again and again and again. So when I was working and living in the US, I was lucky enough to find a board game group that met 
every Saturday at a library and it, they played from 10 till 10, you know, 10 in the morning till 10 at night. And I just lucked onto a table of people who were playing and I played games with them for the next three or four years. And back then the games of choice, uh, they used to do games in rotation and uh, we used to play over and over again Power Grid, St. Petersburg, there was another one which I can't remember, and Cuba. We played those in rotation over and over again. And then Agricola arrived in 2000, I think we saw it in 2008 probably, early 2008. And then Agricola quickly rose to the top as one of our favourite games and we always played at five-player. So I was introduced to Agricola as five-player. We loved it. We could not get enough of it and we just constantly played it and every time you played it, it was different and that's why I keep going back to it. I had never played other than five-player for about a year. It was always five-player game. And my first three-player game, the game changed completely again. When you change the number of players, the pace and the style of game changes completely. Therefore, I never tire of it. Does that help explain the um, – I never sick. I never get sick of it. It's actually one of the first – worker placement games that I ever played also. So one of my very good friends and my ex, Brian, he used to play it all the time with his board game group. So he used to have a board game group that came to our house in North Melbourne. And funnily enough, at that time, I sort of occasionally would play games, but I wasn't really that into it. And I think it's because those group of guys are extremely competitive. None of them are particularly good teachers. They're lovely people. But, yeah, they were all in it to win. So me coming in and trying to play with them when I had no idea what I was doing was very in-your-face and just not a very welcoming environment. But Brian and I sat down a couple of times and played now what we were calling Agricola, (laughs) 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 at which point the very first time I met Karen and went, oh, you've got Agricola. And she looked at me <laughs> like I had just walked in with a knife and was about to stab her. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very quickly corrected that it is Agricola. <laughs> I, I hadn't heard Agricola until I came back to Australia because everyone in the US called it Agricola. And then I came back to Australia and was saying Agricola and going, it just sounds weird. And then, yeah, I think there's a post on on the internet that tells you how to do it just how to pronounce it. It sounds weird to me calling it Agricola because I went to an agricultural high school and agriculture is not agriculture. It's, yeah, like it. So I was just calling it based on, you know, agriculture. So, yeah, but when I saw that you were playing it at the first bunny con that I attended and I was like, oh, yeah, oh, no, it wasn't. It was Final Con, mm, I'm pretty mm. sure. It was Final Con. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I love that game. I haven't played that for years. I want to play. So I, it's definitely one of those games I think you can come back to again and again and again. And absolutely every single time I've played it, it's been a totally different game as well. It definitely speaks to my extremely competitive. I'm not at all competitive. We keep saying this. <laughs> my very competitive little soul of loving a game that you can definitely win. So if I said I don't play to win, everyone would be just laughing their 
laughing. Because <laughs> you I win every time. Win. Not every time, but um, I play a similar game. I have a similar style the way I approach the game. And sometimes I have more points than someone else, but I don't care if I have more points or less points than someone else. My satisfaction comes from building my little farm and playing the cards that I wanted to play that I saw at the start of the game went, oh, that card sounds like fun. I'm going to try and get that out. That's my mission. Or I might challenge myself to, I'm going to try and feed my family without cooking any animals. I'll give myself little challenges and I'll look at my cards and I'll go, I think I can play this game without cooking any animals. I'm going to give that a go. And if I get more points at the end than someone else, that's not what I was aiming to do. I was just, but it often turns out that way because you build a better farm. (laughs) <laughs> if you have that challenge. Um, but that's not my aim. I, I get satisfied whether I win or not. And Karen, do you decide your challenge before or after you've seen your hand of cards? So after I've seen the cards and mm-hmm. sometimes it changes. I, I'm allowed to change my little challenge. <laughs> and w- yeah. one of the things I keep explaining to people when they're learning to play is at the beginning of the game you look at your cards and you think, well, these cards aren't very good. I don't know how I'm going to play any of these cards. They're not really my style of game. And then, you know, a couple of rounds in, you look at your cards again you go, oh, my God, that card is perfect. That's the card I'm going to play now. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the beginning. Or you think, you never, I'll never play that card. I'll never, ever play that card. And you just read it again further into the game and you'll go, oh, my God, that's perfect for the situation I'm in right now. And that's what I love about it, like those little surprises that you get. Do we know how many cards there actually are in Agricola with all of the expansions? I couldn't tell you the number of cards. If I have a quick look at my wall, I think I've got five or six expansion decks and there's 120 cards in each deck. That's This is for the revised Ooh. edition. That's a lot. But Agricola, as that's it stands, doesn't actually have a lot of cards. Because it's not a card-driven game. It uses cards for the worker placement spots and it uses cards for the, the hand. But it's most of what you're doing is is sort of physical. Um, and the same thing, because that's usually true with Uwe Rosenberg's game, but when you go and look at Feast for Odin, because a Feast for Odin, you often end up using way less of the cards in a Feast for Odin than you would in Agricola, which also Feast for Odin has occupations, Agricola has occupations, but they're different. You cannot compare the cards in Feast for Odin to no. the cards in Agricola. Take that back. (laughs) It's it's not a comparison. I was thinking more about this because in the Feast for Odin, so in Agricola, you have 14 cards plus the major improvements. So you've got 14 cards in your hand, seven occupations, seven um, uh, minor improvements, and they are what you have available to you in the game and they're only what you have available to the end of the game. And in the base box, you've got, what is it? It's about 100-odd cards, 120-odd cards in the base box. I think it's... 48 of each. 48. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's probably around that because you then take off the, the ones with the actual worker placement spots. In a Feast for Odin, where you'll probably use less of these cards, in the base box only, there's about 300 cards of which you'll only use a couple, and it tells you when you got sick of this deck after maybe playing it 60 times. You might consider moving on to this deck after playing it 60 times. You might consider moving on to this deck. I wonder if anyone has... There'll be cards in the Feast for Odin that nobody has ever played. Probably. Yeah, somewhere at the bottom of the deck, the occupations. There'll be something that's never come out. I would never compare the cards in Agricola to the cards in Feast for Odin. And I think in Feast for Odin, when you see the size of that deck, you think they're more important than they are. 
But if you play with the Norwegians, the cards can turn into points. You can discard them for other things, like there's more. Because they found that nobody was playing the cards like you do in Agricola. So the cards, uh, they've given other values to the cards, which is a good thing. But even with the base deck in Agricola, you can play many, 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 many games of that without ever repeating yourself. Yeah. You don't have to have all the expansion decks. I don't think I've ever had the same cards come up twice and I've played it many, many, many times. So The possibility of that, even with the small card deck, because when you've got like if you've got 48 cards, the possibility of getting the same seven twice in a row is incredibly unlikely. And that balance really, really matters. But you've got 48 occupations and 48 uh, minor improvements. You only And most people only play two or three cards. Not many people ever play all 14 cards. It's only two or three. And each, and again, the game changes every time you play it. Other things come in your way. All the way through the game, it is tempting you off your path. You have a sort of a plan and it's constantly tempting you off the path to try something else and do something else. And that's why every time you play it, it feels different. You never tire of it. There's always something new to try. So for those of you sort of listening um, at home that maybe actually don't know Agricola at all, it's probably worth giving, uh, I'm going to attempt, dangerous thing to do, to give almost like the uh, sort of one and a half minute explanation of how it works. So Agricola is a game in which you are building a farm, ostensibly in the 17th century, sort of post-plague. So you're starting off from a very, very low base in terms of what you have in a little wooden shack, and you're building yourself up by building minor and major improvements to your farm, looking after animals, building up paddocks for those animals to sit in, growing vegetables and generally trying to compete to build the best farm whilst not allowing your family to starve. At the end of the game, you're going to get points based upon the farm that you've built. And in front of you, you've got a map effectively at the beginning. You've got a grid of five by four farm spaces with a couple of that are reserved for housing. And on that, you can then build, turn them into fields, plow fields, put your paddocks on based upon the resources that you spend, which you get from using the worker placement spots on the main board, and the actions you can take, which you also get from using the worker placement spots on the main board. And that main board gets quite competitive because you'll start off with a range of spaces available that are standard and some that are different for your player count, and then cards that are played in four different stages will be played to effectively give you new opportunities, but you don't quite know what order they're going to come out in. You know roughly what order but not quite which order exactly. And after the first four rounds, you're going to have a harvest. You've got to feed everyone. Otherwise, they're going to be starving and you're going to lose loads of points. But you get to breed your animals and harvest your vegetables. And then the next harvest comes quicker. And the next one comes quicker still and quicker still and quicker still. So in this process, you're trying to get this stuff, but so is everybody else. So what looks like a multiplayer solitaire game, one where you're building your own little farm, suddenly gets really, really, really competitive because you're all fighting over these spaces. And one of those spaces could be the only one that does what you think you need. So how do you get around the fact that you might need to do something else? Well, you've got seven minor improvement cards randomly selected that are just yours and seven occupation cards randomly selected that are just yours. And you've also got the opportunity to play those that can give you a leg up if you choose the right one in the game, which allows you to supercharge what it is that you're doing. 
And those are, as, as Karen was just referring, what makes the game wildly, wildly different. They're, in fact, they're such an important part of Agricola. They're why people love the game. So Uwe Rosenberg in 2015 decided he was going to revolutionize Agricola by taking those away and building a new game without them. And he created a game called <laughs> Caverna the Cave Farmers, which ostensibly, and even in the manual, he thought was like Chris. Agricola. And I'm going to get Chris, stopped must- now. <laughs> stop you there <laughs> if, if you saw me if this was a video you would have seen my jaw drop what how do you know he was revolutionized well, where do you use get this word revolutionizing agricola from <laughs> what, what do you ladies bring? and gentlemen chris's uh role this episode is to stir karen as much as possible <laughs> so i'm, I'm well what was what was he trying to do and it's interesting what he was trying to do because I think the first step of what he was trying to do came from the Farmers of the Moor expansion. So I, it's what he seems to be looking at was about theme. The Agricola has a, an expansion that's Father, Farmers of the Moor. Do you play a lot with the expansion or without the expansion, Karen? Farmers of the Moor is my favourite way to play Agricola. But I, and I love it. Farmers of the Moor encourages you to build a farm. Remember, I started playing Agricola with five players. There's a lot of competition on the board for spaces and a lot of people were just trying to five, grow their family to five and grow their house to five stone and to get the maximum points, right? And nobody was caring about the building a farm. Farmers of the Moor forces you to build a farm because you have to heat your house so there's less less focus on growing your house because you have to heat it and therefore you build a farm and plus you start with a board that's not completely empty because in Agricola you start with an empty board and you have to fill it up to minimise losing points. So Farmers of the Moor starts with stuff on the board already and the special action cards in Farmers of the Moor are fantastic as a way, like a bonus. It's a bonus action that doesn't take one of your workers. So farmers, I love Farmers of the Moor. But usually I'm teaching Agricola and it's their first time playing, so I'm always teaching Agricola. But if people come back, I try to encourage them to also try Farmers on the Moor. It's my absolute favourite way of playing Agricola. So do you feel, because one of the things I felt, because I started with Caverna and went backwards. And so in Caverna, which was... I don't think it was Uwe Rosenberg's next game because he was quite prolific and there's a whole bunch of games between 2008 and 2015 that weren't just agricultural expansions. Um, but it was effectively revisiting some of that. And some of the themes that came out in that were around having to clear your space. So in Caverna, you are a cave farming dwarf. So you're hacking out your caverns to live in and building places to stay. You're hacking down the forest so that you can build your pastures, which is riffing one step further on what you did in Farms of the Moor, because you've also got to clear the woods to be able to build your pastures. Um, but one of the key things that seemed to be stepping out of that game was a response to those that found Agricola too cutthroat. And it said, well, we're going to make it a little bit more even-handed, and we're going to put in the wild card. So the wild card was the rubies, the idea that if you can go and collect rubies, or in fact you can also go on these adventure expeditions, which allow you to go and get assorted resources. And each one of these things then gave you a means of being able to trade in for stuff that you otherwise couldn't get by just competing over those spaces. So in many ways, it neutered what a lot of people love about Agricola. It enabled something that had put some people off Agricola, perhaps when they'd been playing against someone really, really, really good at Agricola, but somebody less warm and 
friendly and approachable than Kerry, um, because I'm sure somewhere there is the Agricola hawk, the equivalent of a card shark or a poor shark. <laughs> I know who that person is, and his name is Brian. <laughs> right, I, Brian. So I, they play Brian. I can <laughs> tell you a story. I can tell you a story about Go for it. Um, so for me, the main difference between Agricola and Caverna is in Agricola there's this tension, and that's the, what I love about the game. There's this tension. Will I make it? Am I going to get through? Am I going to make it? Am I going to survive till the end? I'm on the edge of my seat through the whole game. I might not look like it, but internally I'm feeling like I'm on the edge of my seat watching, like when you're watching a movie that's a you know has you on the edge of your seat waiting for the next thing to happen. I never know what's going to happen in Agricola. I'm on the edge of my seat through the whole game. When when I started playing Caverna, I thought it feels like a romp, a romp through the forest and the mountains, and it was a more of a lighter game. Not like um, it, there's no tension. There was no tension in uh, Caverna for me. So I know that there are people who love Caverna, and there are people who, uh, who love Caverna and hate Agricola, and people who love Agricola and hate too strong a word. It's not for them, I should say, and. Some people are in both camps. They, they don't mind either game. And the people who don't like Agricola, I said, you should try Caverna. It might be more your, suitable for you. They're both excellent games. Agricola is more for me is my thing. But I mean, let me tell you um, a story. So I used to go to a lot of conventions in the U.S. and one of them was the World Board Game Championships in Pennsylvania. Um, usually happens Ooh. in July, August. And their convention is all about tournaments. They run tournaments on all the top games. They're so well run. And, of course, Agricola was one of the games that would be played. And so I, I went a couple of times and met a whole lot of super Agricola players. I am no match for them. Then I, and they took some of the fun out of the game for me. They love drafting. I never draft in Agricola. So one of the, one of the main ways to play Agricola is to deal out the seven cards uh, of each to each player Pick one and pass the deck on and you draft through the whole deck. I found that. That is how I played my first game. Oh, my goodness. You don't even know what the cards do. And Exactly. In, on your first game. So that's very, um, what's uh, what I can't think of the right word, intimidating because you don't know yeah. what cards are good and what cards are bad. I Even after all my plays, I don't know which cards are good and which cards are bad, but there's all the people who used to play in this tournament of Agricola all played on that website, um, playagricola.com, and I've never played on it, but they all play on it religiously. So this is going back to 2008, nine even. They know the percentage win rate of all the cards. It's like playing Scrabble with people who know all the special Scrabble words or chess oh. with all the people that know all the chess moves. It's just no fun playing with them. I like to just play my cards and have fun with my cards and my choices and do that. In fact, this is my ultimate Agricola story. At one event I saw these guys and they dealt out, they didn't even set the board up. They got the cards out, they dealt out the cards, they did the draft, and at the end of the draft they laid their hands on the table and decided who would have won the game if they had played. I said, you guys are crazy. What? I want to play Agricola and enjoy building my little farm. So, yes, I'm a great fan, I, but I, I'm not interested in drafting. There's a whole lot of things around Agricola. I just play a simple game. Is that, you need um, that 
you need that sense of chance to have the challenge because yeah. actually you're removing the variety in the game when you do that. And yes. I'm, I, I, we talked, I think, in a previous episode about briefly about drafting games, and it's something that we should come back to because drafting games can be brilliant, but the first-time player, a drafting game Definitely is an absolute not. nightmare. Um, I mean, you look at a game like What a Wonderful World, first time round, you have to be annihilated it at least once to even understand it and probably again to get past it. And it's it's so, it got such a learning yeah, curve. And, and back then a lot of people called Agricola Misery Farm because it was so hard to feed your family. Oh, and, no. Whereas when I'm teaching the game, I'm encouraging, you know, you go through the rules and I say, make sure you have a way to feed your family. Like Bill, get a food engine, some way you're going to feed your family. And uh, you'll be you then you're fine after that. And it's mm-hmm. there are a lot of ways to feed your family in the revised version. There's a lot more ways to feed your family. It's nowhere near as punishing. I was gonna say I have one regret about BunnyCon, and that was not lining up a time with you to play Agricola. Because I love playing Agricola with you, Karen. So we definitely need to arrange a time. Well, next time we'll make a, a stronger effort to play. I'm I'm happy to play all the time. You know, I'm happy to play. Uh, but there's a reason well, I'm not sure where we're at in time wise and have we covered things and have I derailed you from your caverna? Who wants to talk about caverna? Not me. No, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna talk about caverna in just a moment. But before we do, we need to have a word from our sponsors. Come one, come all for a fun day of exploration and shopping. Do you love meeting local designers? How about fun and innovative board game gadgets? Have you always wanted to chat with a publisher about your ideas? I know you love a good game market. So why not come along to the inaugural Melbourne Board Game Market, hosted by the Melbourne Meeple's crew at the Collingwood Town Hall on the 27th of May. Entry is by Gold Coin Donation. Check out the Melbourne Meeple's Facebook group for expression of interest if you're a publisher, a designer, or just have something fun you'd like to exhibit. Of course, we're going to have forms that are available if you would like to sell a bunch of your board games as well. We would love to hear from you, so please come along to the Melbourne Board Game Market 27th of May at the Collingwood Town Hall. Entries by a gold coin donation. Doors open at 10am and close at 4. We can't wait to see you there. That's the 27th of May at the Collingwood Town Hall, the Melbourne Board Game Market. Welcome back, everyone. So, now is the time that we talk about... I had my first experience on Friday night with Caverna. I was wondering whether to just like, let's take the gloves right off straight away, just to keep things and make things interesting. Because we're now part of the board game media and there's a lot of lovable people in the board game media. Kind of, there's people that have done fantastic things for board games. You know, we look at the Dice Tower and look at the phenomenal stuff they've done worldwide to increase the scope and the, the presence of our media. And I'm sure that Karen's number one fan is Tom Vassell. So I've got a quote from Tom Vassell here. <laughs> to kick things off a little bit. I went and got it word for word, and I was surprised. I remembered it, and then I thought I'd heard it, and I thought, oof, this is from the end of his review of Caverna. Instantly, this is on my shelf. And I'll tell you what, it instantly replaces Agricola. I will never play Agricola again. Oh, oh. Those are fighting words, Tom Vassal. <laughs> <laughs> 
the number of times people came up to me and when Caverna first came out, the number of times people came up to me and said, oh, you're still playing Agricola. I heard Caverna's taken. I went, oh, Tom Vassell, yeah? Good luck to you. He's probably more, <laughs> as I said earlier, some people are more in the Caverna camp and other people are more in the Agricola camp and they're just two different games. They're completely different games. They have completely different feel they really are. and style to them. So he can, he should know better than to say something like that. I'm not sure how much he knew better in 2015, but I, I know that he's had like, he's done some sort of like look back sort of videos and things. And I, I need to sort of have a listen back to see where he's come to because I have a lot of shared tastes with Tom Vassell, which is brilliant because he reviews so many games that having someone that is that prolific who actually likes and dislikes similar things than I do makes picking games a lot easier. It's very dangerous on a wallet. But I suspect that he's probably come back from that a little bit because there is that rhythm about the car play in Agricola. And the fact that you have to choose, and for me, the drafting would spoil that completely as well. I'd agree with that. I just don't want to touch that. That just ruins it. There's a thing about that and about having that completely different sandboxing to play with, which actually adds a spark to it. But Caverna is an interesting game because... Uwe Rosenberg could have made a completely different game. Normally he does. He makes a lot of worker placement games, but they're different. You know, the Agricola is not the same game as the Feast Road. It's not the same game as La Havre. It's not the same game as Patchwork, which isn't even a worker placement game. It's not the same game as, you know, Halatau or whatever. But with Caverna, he specifically took the framework of Agricola and built on that. And the rule book is full of notes that says, don't bother reading this bit. If you played Agricola, it's the same. And then it goes, stop, read from now because it isn't. So he was trying to do something that was an answer to Agricola. And he was also doing a bit of one-upmanship because, um, and I'm trying to think about the timing of this, because when Agricola first came out, Karen, it's right that it didn't have all the little meeples, did it? It had cubes for stuff. Yeah. And then yes. Caverna came out with its monster pieces. So, you know, kind of it's like... I didn't realise how much bigger they were. They're so much bigger than the Agricola pieces. So the animals aren't, right? The animals aren't bigger, but the rest of the things are. So basically what it means is, is in Caverna, these dwarves have discovered genetically modified farming. Um, <laughs> but they have these uh, absolutely <laughs> massive boulders of rock, you know, absolutely massive bushels of wheat. It's like saying these dwarves aren't going to starve. You know what you're worried about being able to heat your house? And you're getting <laughs> angst. You're worried about misery farm. There's no misery farm here. I'll tell you what, right? And if you can't feed your family, as Jen couldn't last Friday night briefly, she became a starving author by building a writing chamber that allowed her, because she was sitting there like writing novels, to basically not bother feeding her family and let them starve in the name of art and didn't lose any points. I would just like to say that was a very strategic move, sir, and it, it did was. pay off for me. <laughs> it did that. And that was sort of fabulous. So the big difference is a weird one because then Agricola the revised edition came out with the meeple things but the well the animals there, were, the there were some other things prior to the revised edition you could buy it with animeeples it's the very first edition had cubes for animals and discs for resources and I didn't mind those because they were easy to stack as the person who usually stacks the board they were very easy to stack much harder with the shaped pieces but of course with the round pieces if you buy an old edition of Agricola, it'll have round discs and everyone always mixed up the wood and the clay. They're two shades of brown and you need to count how many there are to know which one's wood and which one's clay. 
Ah. The game is so good. I didn't care that it only had round discs and cubes for animals. That's how good the game is. And it is that good. I think that's that's fair. I had no idea that Agricola came differently beforehand. It's interesting. The Caverna, for its dwarves or its kind of like characters, if you have the Forgotten Folk and they could be trolls, whatever, has discs as the workers. Yet Agricola Revised actually has little sort of farming people. Yeah, so I never quite understood why that was that way. Because there's a lot of pressure on games now to have to be pretty, fancy, pretty and fancy. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of pressure now with uh, with in competition with other games. A lot of pressure for the designers to have all the wooden bits in shapes and stuff. You know, you couldn't get away with just cubes and discs anymore. I can see the logic behind Caverna having discs because can you imagine if you had little meeple farmers trying to get the little hats on them because the you know when you're building up your dwarves to have to go out an expedition I looked at those as are they shields or are they hats like whatever they're meant to be how would you attach those to a little farmer meeple where it's much easier just to have a little disc sitting on top of a little disc you know, these yes. days they probably like insist on having a slot in their head, like a girl to stick it on there or probably. like an actual hat to wear. But Nate, you're right. That's the main thing, isn't it? Because you've got that little adventuring mechanic. And that's a weird one because it that's a real leap of faith in terms of the theme because Agricola feels really thematic, feels real. And Caverna feels really thematic. You know, kind of after a while you get past the structure of the game and you, you think about your actual farm or whatever it is. That adventuring thing where you're putting in Caverna your dwarf can go out on an adventure and you put something that represents their combat strength on top of it. And this disc goes out on an adventure and they go out and they find some new home furnishings and a cow, if they're really, really, really (laughs) powerful. And it's like, I went on this adventure and I hacked and I slashed and I found a lovely set of drapes, you know, there's a couple of nice settees. (laughs) The sofa, <laughs> right? And some linen. I, I ended up in like the back room of Bunnings or like, you know, in Spotlight or something. And it's that is completely counterintuitive. And the moment you start playing the game, it's counterintuitive. But actually, once you start playing, it works quite well as a leveler. But I think the thing with, I guess the thing with Caverna is it's it opens it up as a sandbox. The real difference to Agricola is it says instead of all these different cards that you might or might not have, you can have all these rooms you could build, and they're all there. Only one of you can get each one, but it's like the master improvement market writ large. It takes forever to set up because you lay you lay whatever it is forty five of them out on a grid. You've got the rubies, you've got the adventures, so it becomes more of a sandbox. The risk, of course, with that is that in theory you could play the same game of Caverna again. And again, and again, and again. So I guess, I mean, that's the thing, Kerry, you were talking about competitive players. Did you find in like the board game contests or were you already back in Australia at that point that people were having Caverna contests? Or did they say there's no point because once we get good enough, we'll just play the same game? What games get chosen to be in the tournament, I think is based on somebody putting their hand up to be the, what do they call them, the GM, you know, who will mm-hmm. run the game, who will run the tournament and do all the things. And everybody there wants to win because they want to win the plaque at the end. You know, there's a whole pecking order of um, people trying to win the plaque and win the points. None of that ever interested me. I was always in the open gaming area. In the first year I went, I did uh, join a few of the St. Petersburg and the 
competitions and stuff like that. And, oh, my God, those people are like they tell you who's going to win after the first round of cards come out. <laughs> so I started to lose interest in it and I just went and hung out and open gaming with other people. But a lot of people took it very seriously. But then a lot of people were just there to have fun and play with the people that they played with the year before and try and do better. I learned a lot about Agricola by playing in a few tournaments and playing with different sorts of people. But these days I just want to build my little farm and to get the satisfaction from that. I'm satisfied with playing uh, non-competitively. I'm just trying to build my farm and meet my little challenges. I definitely think there's a lot of merit in being able to play Agricola that way, where there definitely isn't with some other games. So I am going to Switzerland a little bit (laughs) and say I don't have a favourite between them. I think both of them are very good games, both Caverna and Agricola. They're very different. I didn't expect them to be as different as they actually are. I know Joe, Chris's wife, clearly favours Caverna because we actually have this really funny thing where all three of us, when we're playing together, we know that Joe gets super forgetful. And for the same reason that I sometimes get super forgetful, we're both people who are neurodiverse, and every now and then we'll be playing and all of a sudden my favourite thing for Joe to say is, oh, crap, I accidentally cheated again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think for her probably... My my thoughts are, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, it's it's a little bit more of a simple game than Agricola, which is probably why it appeals to Joe more because if she does accidentally cheat with something, it's a lot easier to go back and fix it. Um, I think there's some, some of that. The thing which I'd really say, and this is what makes Caverna potentially more accessible, is that it feels less tense. And it yes. depends how that goes because I've played a lot more Caverna than I have Agricola. I think in my heart of hearts, and it might be novelty because of that, I actually prefer Agricola to Caverna. And I don't 100% know whether that's the case, but I suspect it is, and everything about the difference would lean it to me enjoying it more. But I think I'll still end up playing more Caverna because Agricola is just more competitive by nature. You can play it less competitively, but it is more competitive by nature. Caverna is a little bit more of a toy box sandbox by nature so i know that i'm more likely to play i'll play more with joe and joe loves it and she loves it for that reason because there's a lot of games that are much simpler rules wise than caverna and caverna actually adds a whole bunch of rules on top of agricola so it's the thing that it doesn't do is leave you with i really wish i knew what this card did in my hand i can't ask anyone without giving away the card that is in my hand when I'm teaching the game, I encourage I encourage people to ask me questions and that I will not remember that card in their hand and it will not affect the choices <laughs> that I make because I want them to yeah. enjoy playing that card and help them have a good time. What I've been doing recently is if I'm teaching the game is I don't play and then I can help all the players and that works really well for me because then I don't have to concentrate on what I might be doing. But I can understand why there's people who love Caverna that is fantastic. It finds the game you love and play them a lot is my message. Not every game Definitely. is Definitely. Well, I think that brings us to a point of talking about how friendly are these games where it comes to people who are disabled or have some neurodiversities. And, yeah, I mean, I've, I've mentioned in the past I have ADHD. So for me, 
games that are a little more simple are often fantastic, but I'm also someone who likes something really complex. Highly unlikely to remember something that is super complex, but I'll give it a damn good go, that's for sure. So, yeah, I mean, let's start with yourself. What do you think, Karen? How friendly do you think that Agricola is for somebody who has a neurodiversity? I believe that not all games are for all people and it's really good when you find the games that suit you. So while I'm not neurodiverse, I am now in the retired older category. It's a big effort for me to learn new games now, much bigger effort than it was 10 years ago and to retain all the rules and learn something, which is why I keep playing my old favourites. That's why I play the Agricola all the time because I know that I know it back to front. I can teach it well. But find the games that suit you is my message. Not all games suit all people. And if somebody, you were trying to introduce a friend to a new game and they didn't like that game, find another one. There's so many games out there and it depends on your mood depends on where you, how tired you are that day. There's so many other factors going on. What else is going on in your life? Can you take in the rules? Like I always try to tell people before we start a game how long I think it'll take. This is going to be, we're going to be doing this for the next two hours or we're going to be, you know, to give people a chance to, I'm sorry, I, won't, I, can't, I can't commit to that and they can walk away. What I learned over the years was how to filter out the games I didn't want to play by knowing what I did like. Like, I'm never going to play a space game. I'm just not interested in the theme. So that eliminated a lot of games well, for me. There goes inviting Karen to station for Chris. <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Work within your strengths is my thing. Absolutely. I actually think in terms of these two games in particular, I think they're quite good if you're neurodiverse because a lot of the rules are out there. You know, they've got very good, very clear rule books. Um, They do have very good player aids as well. There are a couple of times while playing Caverna that I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it was so quick and easy to resolve. And I think a few times we've mentioned, particularly for neurodiversity, if you are regularly playing with people who are neurodiverse, make yourself a couple of photocopies of the rule book or a cheat sheet or whatever else is in there. And that's definitely going to make it easier for everybody. What about dexterity wise? What if we thinking about those two games and if you were playing with somebody who maybe wasn't as dexterous, you know, how do we feel that either of these games would go? So in this one, I'm going to turn it straight out that Caverna will win only just that's a paper thing, just because the hardest thing to pick up in Agricola are the flat wooden stone pieces because they slide about a little bit and there's chunkier bits on the board. However, Caverna, as you said, has the discs, which are more fiddly to pick up and be able to place down. So that's probably about even. But in general, when you're looking at the two games, they are, they're both really, really quite good. In that sense, the the pieces are really easy and clear to tell apart. I mean, yeah, you can have a look now at a cow and some wood. If you put the cows and the wood in one pile, you would have some time sorting them out. But on their own, it's easy to do that. It's not really, really, really finickety. Even the food tokens, which are a little bit small and fiddly, aren't hard to manipulate. So it's pretty good in that way. When I'm setting up a game on the table and I'm teaching new players, I make sure everyone can reach the things they need to be able to reach. 
being short myself. I make sure people can reach the resources that they need to be able to get. And that some people don't want to hold the cards in their hand. I say put them down on the table, face up. I'm not going to play against you showing me the cards that you've got. Like make it easy for them. Make it as easy as possible for somebody to enjoy the game, especially if they're learning it for the first time. Set the board up. I'm always I'm always looking at the board upside down, let the new players read it the right way up. For example, the major improvements board, those cards, I make sure that's sitting very close to them so they can read the cards that are there. Often when you're playing with people who are who've played the game before, you can put it at the end of the board. But always make sure that it's in view and they can see it. Things like that. That's all I can or set the board up, Caverna out on the table, making sure that people can see all those little, uh, your strength, you know, those little discs that go on top. Make sure you can easily find them and see them. We broke it up really well when we were playing Caverna. We gave each other sort of jobs. So, you know, Chris was sitting there managing the the strength discs and some of the the other resources at his end of the table. And then, you know, Joe was managing stuff on her end of the table because we really had a bit of a limited table as to being able to spread everything out, but we mm. still made it work by just, you know, being cooperative. And uh, I think that's yeah. the key to a lot of games, I, right, just be cooperative. I think in my Caverna box I had photocopies of all the buildings like that's so that you didn't have to, so you could read mm-hmm. what the buildings were and you could sort of tell what was missing. You know, you'd, lay, you'd photocopy, like you'd lay them out on the board and then photocopy that or take a photo of that and print it. And had it in the box so people weren't trying. Because when you're learning a new game, if you can't sort of see what those things over there, you sort of you ignore those things for that game. You sort of have a look later or something. You, there's too much to take in, too many things. Yeah, that is the challenge with Caverna because although it gives you all the information laid out, and I would hazard a judgment that I feel that it is easier to look at the rooms in Caverna and go, I understand exactly what that does than it is for some of the old cards in Agricola. And you'd expect that. That's a learning about how to do graphic design and things over the years since Agricola was released. Um, So I think that's easier. But actually accessing the board is still a bit of a pain. So that was something, Jen, is is there's there's only one place you can put that on a long table. And usually someone's going to be able to pour all over it. They're going to be able to sit there and look at all the different rooms every single turn. And other people are kind of working by guesswork. So there is the appendix that you've got in both games. And the appendix then gives you a guide as to what, have, what is everything in it. But that could do with copies. And to be honest, I think, Karen, you're right. I think it's better off if you've actually got a sheet of show me the tiles because the actual descriptions on the tiles, you know, it's, are pretty good, you know, and then you can visualize it and that levels the playing field there. So I think that having that in Caverna would be required. And at that point, it makes it a, yeah, it's a more accessible game just because it's more open in communication, but it doesn't have to be because you can play Agricola in a similarly accessible way. But that, I think, is, is something you could do. The player aids are, I think it's really well written, but I know uh, Joe's occasionally struggled to find, like with the appendix, it's there. There's only a few pages in it, but you're looking at it and going, and I, and I look at it and go, I can't find it. And he's like, oh, it's right in front of me because it's quite old fashioned. And it's just like this table in the middle of a grey page. <laughs> it just doesn't really jump Every, out at you. Exactly. And everybody has a different learning method. And some people need to see it graphically rather than a block of text, a wall of text. I think it just makes it quicker and easier for everybody when you've got that graphic there as well. Like it's not, 
It's probably the one thing I didn't like about Caverna is that that rule book trying to go through and look for, or the appendix trying to go through and look for what do these individual rooms actually do was very complex. And it could be very easily simplified just by having a little box for each thing and having quick explanation next to it. Like it visually just sets it out much, much better. So I guess if you are somebody who is playing with people who don't know the game very well or you're wanting to teach Caverna, but in particular, I would be making up, if you want to put the time in to do that, your own little set of here is the explanation for each of these rooms just to set it out a little bit easier. Definitely a very good way to do it. It would have been great if they'd have learned for A Feast for Odin because at some point we'd have to talk about A Feast for Odin just because it's such a ridiculously overtop game. It is the, the prog rock double album of board games. But the appendix that describes all the occupation cards, and I think there's only so many of them because he had so many thematic ideas for things from history, but it's like reading a tax code. I ignore the cards in Feast for Odin. I, don't, I never hardly ever, ever play them. I hardly ever no, play them. I've never it's played the game. <laughs> So they get far too much focus. I don't know why. Even though they're often not used, and I think there is that pitch to say, well, you could use them more, you can use them more in the expansion, but then you're not really using them for what they are. You're just using them for a kind of currency. But the the actual coding on them to say, do I understand what I can do when I look at this card in a Feast for Odin is pretty poor, actually. There is a logic to it, but it's utterly cryptic until you played it for a while, which is another reason why people don't use them. They'll go and go, do I know what this does? No, it's one of like, it's number 172. Get out the tax code. Look out the description of number 172. It says, how? Why does that mean that? And eventually it makes sense. And then they turn out to be not that impactful because you can play the game other ways. But that, you know, the game's phenomenal, but that's like the least interesting bit of it. But they could have been done better. And I think that's something where it's just, how do you manage that content? But of course, people are used to that with with his games. And I think the one thing that is definitely true about Uwe Rosenberg's games is that he designs them to be played again and again and again and again and again and get better with every play. They're not designed to be the thing that is like kind of a a flash in the pan wonder. And they need to be learned to really enjoy them. Yeah, that's what interests me about games. Like, do you remember when you first joined the board game community, you pretty much play anything. I'm at the other end where I won't play anything and I'll only play games that I'm, I think will interest me. And can I, do I have the brain energy to learn them? That's my thing now. Absolutely. And look, I think that's a really smart way to play games as well. And I guess going back to playability with both Caverna and Agricola, if you are someone who is colorblind, I think these two games are extremely friendly for that. Probably not in the first iteration from what we were discussing before where they were just cubes and discs but now where everything is a slightly different shape everything is a slightly different size everything has its place chris i know has the really good storage system i actually have the storage system i haven't put it together or put it in my boxes so i definitely need to do that at some point my only little thing is those player discs if you were red green color blind you might have to ask someone which is my disc when picking it back up. But that's a pretty minor inconvenience in the grand scheme of things. In Caverna, he solved that problem in a way that he didn't properly solve it without the, multi- the extra player expansion in Agricola. Because Agricola, the same thing could be true with the people, right? You've got to remember where you put them. Mm. In Caverna, you've got it set up out the box for seven players. 
playing Caverna with more than five players is a stupid thing you should never, ever, ever, ever do. It immediately gives you two (laughs) extra colours and you can pick. I've done seven player. It was a blast. We had a great time. Seven player Caverna was a great time. Uh, 30 minutes a player. Eight yeah, hours. We did it at um, Dice Tower. <laughs> it was a Dice Tower Con uh, one of the, whenever I went then. I'd have to check my thing in the 2010s somewhere. It took us four hours to play Caverna the other night. I ran the, I ran the game. I taught the game. Most of the people who played had played before. I think we only had one or two newbies. I think that's Very the crux, isn't enough. it? If you, if you know what you're doing, you can make it run, but it's otherwise I was it, there it 40 on. minutes early to set the table up specifically for seven and have it laid out in a way that everyone could get their stuff done. I did a lot of thought and prep going into it, yeah. And it was at Dice Tower Con, so halfway through teaching it, Tom Vassell walks overhead and goes, look, even Karen's playing it. <laughs> now, I have a, a funny for you. While I was scrolling through... Board Game Geek the other day, I found some very interesting reviews for Agricola. (laughs) There is one in Mm -hmm. particular. Oh, here we go. Written reviews. The very first one. Worst game ever. It's (laughs) so, so funny. The person who reviewed it, like, clearly... I don't think they were doing it for lols, but it definitely, reading through it, made me absolutely laugh so much. And his main issue with Agricola was references to Gaius Julius Agricola. (laughs) What? Like he was referring to some Roman emperor and how definitely it glorified this Roman emperor. And I'm like, "Uh, have you played the game? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Have you actually played the game? And I will happily share this with you guys because it is definitely worth a read for the giggles. And it 100% was like, wow. And if you read through the comments, everybody's like, "Um, really? Have you played the game? I like the tongue-in-cheek police. You know, you completely miss the point. If this was a true story, it would teach people the hazards of knowing too much Roman history. (laughs) Like the whole thing is just crazy. It's crazy. And I, yeah, I definitely got a really good giggle out of it. But I think as someone who knows the game very, very well, it was easy for me to read through and just giggle at that and be like, okay, cool. Unfortunately, it is the most popular voted review on Board Game Geek for Agricola because. So many people are reading through and like thumbsing down and thumbsing up and commenting and because it it's so divisive. I think it's such a good game. Farmers just getting on with their work and feeding their family, looking after their family. That's pretty universal. So the only thing I would just, I'd just like to add, the structure of Agricola and Caverna and a Feast for Odin are not particularly vegetarian friendly. Oh, definitely not. So, so I'd always tell the vegetarians at the table who didn't want to cook their animals that they're just selling them um, at the market. They don't, they're not cooking them. That's what they okay in exchange for a couple of tins of beans. Uh. But, but, yeah, I've never had any complaints from vegetarians on playing a Agricola. No. And don't look at the rulebook. I think the that is almost much. an apologetic, I think somewhere, I haven't got the Agricola rulebook on me, but somewhere right on the front of it, it says something like, through the peasant ages and feed your family and probably eat some meat. Yeah, I remember reading an interview he did where he talked about how he'll never he'll never create a game around power or 
um, you know, military or anything like that. It's always about the common man. And I thought, oh, yes, that's probably why I like his games. No, it's, it's, it's got such a spirit of fun that he brings to uh, everything he does. And when he does bring in history, the history is approached with fun. And when you look at the fact that there's like 300-odd cards when you need maybe 10 in Feast for Odin, um, that's because he was having too much fun and he created them all, um, looking at the history. But the history is there. It's not just like he's invented a game called Peasant Village somewhere in rural Germany <laughs> and picked the name of somewhere and then just put it on the box and done a game about nothing and just put that as the thing. It's actually about what it is. It's funny because I, I keep on the – I don't listen to Dice Tower anymore. I used to listen – I used to watch it on YouTube, the um, Dice Tower content, and they'd always talk about trading in the Mediterranean. I'm going, well, yeah, I love trading in the Mediterranean, like, but they lump them all into one. I'm thinking, but you play all these other games about space and you don't think they're all the same. Not all, not all games about farming are the same. Not, not all card games are the same, but they're all played with a deck of cards. Like I don't understand the people who um, lump, you know, just because that game had dice in it that and that game had dice in it, they're the same. No, just because that game's got a farm in it with um, animals. I'm talking now about Agricola and Caverna. They've got the same um, resources, similar resources and a similar farm setup. They're not nothing like each other. So I do get, and I'll defend a little bit, the trading in the Mediterranean tribe, but I don't think that's quite what was meant by it because I think it's an accusation of um, game designers who have designed potentially an innovative game and they've designed the game and then they stick a setting onto the game and the game could be anything. And what they do is they go, I'm going to call it, let's just look at my a map of Europe, where haven't we used yet? And they just pick the name of the city and stick buildings on the game map, which is right. just and it's fine to have a game which is a mechanical game, and then you put something on the top of it where the theme doesn't inform. It's okay; there's nothing wrong with that. But there, the world's your oyster, even outside of space. You know, you could do it about anything, and a lot of it's just about the market. There's a certain market where people look at a game and say it looks like it must be part of a classic lineage. If it's got a city yes. name, you know, kind of, yes. oh, there's a name of a German designer. I bet it's by the same guy who did Carcassonne, and then you realise it isn't, but it's, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter because at that point the sale's been made. So there's a little bit of kind of laziness there, and I think that's why the Dice Tower have been poking at. Um, I do know, in, in his face, that um, Uwe Rosenberg is Tom Vassell's favourite game designer as well. Really? Uh, by quite some But his favourite Uwe Rosenberg game is still La Havre. Well, and I've La never Havre. played La Havre. Oh, so that's I've one. never played it. Yeah, that's it. Gives me it now, triggers me a little bit when I see pictures because it's got all these little mounds of really cardboard, good. and it's like there's the kind of thing where I go, I need to have little pots to put this in. One thing I hate about no, old games is when I they like say, the... "Take this stuff and pile it." And... No, no, I have it like sprawled all over the board. The abundance feel. I like the, you know full market <laughs> abundance, not um, not all lined up. Not you know, not I don't like <laughs> yeah. containers. I'm a plastic bag person. Yeah. I avoid the containers. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, you see that? I can see that. I, mm-hmm. Before we give our final thoughts on Agricola, we are going to have another word from our sponsors. We are so lucky today to be joined by the amazing crew from Gameway Board Gaming Tables. Hi, guys. How's it going today? Hello. Hey, good. We just got back from a swim, so we're feeling fresh. 
Nice. Well, let's start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, so I'm Julia and um, by day I am an occupational therapist. I work um, in a special school and um, by evenings and weekends I am the better half of Gameway. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's probably my, my little nutshell. <laughs> Um, yeah, my name's Jim. Uh, I'm from Tassie originally. I moved to Melbourne to be an actor and now that, yep, not doing that. Well, anymore. forgive you for being uh, from Tassie. Really, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> that's okay. You know, all same ways making me billions of dollars. Maybe I'll try it again. Uh, and then I just got really into board games. Um, on a trip to Europe, I got incredibly bored in Birmingham. I got so bored that I forced myself to get into board games. And then uh, when I got back, we kind of just started the business, you yeah. know. It, we. Um, I was also forced into loving yeah. games as well. <laughs> yeah, we got a table made. We struggled to get a table made in Australia. We were looking for a while um, and we couldn't get, like, a nice dining table um, and the gaming table exactly how we wanted. So we hitched up with a carpenter and then he made ours and then we're like, well, maybe, maybe we should just do that for, <laughs> for other people. And yeah, it's been it's been great. And look, having played on one of your beautiful tables, I actually three of your beautiful tables. They are really fantastic. <laughs> we had a really good chat at BunnyCon with you guys in regards to your tables and how awesome they are. And I can see behind you that our board game obsession clearly has taken hold. You guys have so many games there. So what would you? Oh, Business absolutely right. <laughs> so what would you say is your favourite game? Yeah, so I'm pretty outspoken in that Twilight Imperium no. edition, everything. <laughs> that is, I'm, yeah, I need a rule book that could be considered a novel. Like, the longer the game, the better. Give me all the rules. I love area control, theme, and immersion generally, so it's kind of of all those. Oh, you, I love it. <laughs> I could go on for hours, but I you won't. You would probably love Agricola then, Jim, but... It yeah, it's it's a bit of a longer game. It's got lots of rules. It's very fun though. And how about yourself, Jules? Yeah, I am the complete opposite. Um, it's very tricky to find a game that Jim and I can both get to the table um, and love similarly because I am exclusively a co-op kind of person. Um, I, I like to play to just enjoy the game and I hate losing. <laughs> I'm really bad at losing. Especially for me. Because I'm probably bad at winning. <laughs> so co-op for me is, is the one. Um, I would say that probably at the moment, I'm assuming Frosthaven will be my favorite game. Um, because Gloomhaven has been and we've just started playing. Um, but if it's a game that I haven't tried to, you know, it takes a, a lot of time commitment and a lot of trying to make sure my friends are available to play with me, my second favourite game is um, Sherlock Consult. Oh, I've been looking at that one. I really want to give it a go. It's so good. Very cool. It's like... Nothing else like it. Yeah, it's so unique. Um, every case, you know, there's there's multiple um, editions of it, so you, you kind of have a different experience every time you play. And we've played with so many different people. You can play by yourself. You can play with the hundred people. You, <laughs> that you could, <laughs> and you can play for as long and as short as you want. It's just such a nice. And it's just 
a theme that I very much like. Mm. I grew up reading the filler books, so now I'm nice. Oh, look, I sit somewhere halfway in the middle in that I love a bit of competition, but every now and then a good co-op game is always fun as well. So, yeah, <laughs> we should definitely set up a, a game day sometime, guys. It'd be amazing. Oh. <laughs> <Any day. laughs> so, now to a bit of a funny question. What is your favourite household item and why? I have a feeling I know what this is going to be for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, um, I, it sounds Jim's like this is going to be very obvious. Yeah, it sounds like I'm chilling <laughs> for the, the company, but like it is my table. Like I just love it. it. It's like the only real piece of furniture I own. Um, so of course that is my favorite thing. But I also do love my Google Home, ah. Google Home Nest Hub, so I can say, "Hey Google, lights red." And I think it's, it's probably going to do it. It's always listening. It did. Oh my yeah. god, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I, just, <laughs> I, I just love that. It's it's uh, it's so cool. Anyway, what's yours, Julia? I could go on for it. Mine is is again an opposite. Or it must be opposites attract over here. Um, mm-hmm. Mine is my crock pot. Oh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have an instant pot and it's like perfect for someone like me who loves cooking but has no like time. Yeah. No time, basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just a gift. Do you have the one that's got the air fryer in it as well? How good. Oh my I God. I don't, but I'm buying that for my mum for Mother's Day and I bought it for my dad for Christmas. No, no, so. no. So <laughs> buy, buy one for yourself and give your mum yours for Mother's Day. <laughs> Yes, you know how to work the system. Absolutely. With all my like stains of all the different, like you know, it's gotten to the point where there's just the, the stains are getting stained by the um, other stuff that's staining essence. it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Essence of everything cooked in it. It's just. It's, it's my fave. That's beautiful. <laughs> oh man, I I use my Instapot all the time as well because yeah you know we all work really long hours if we can have someone else do the hard work for us or something else do the hard work for us why not right but yeah rod and i are definitely looking forward to having one of your tables in our house at some point we absolutely love them (laughs) tell us a bit more about gameway tables where can we find you guys yeah, so, I mean, we've got a website, www.gameway.com.au, where all the information is and a ton of photos. Facebook and Instagram the same, just yep. Gameway. A lot of people find our YouTube uh, channel very helpful when they're both just, like, thinking about buying one of ours or making their own table in general. Also, you know, we make tier lists and fun things, so, you know, that. But, yeah, YouTube is where I would recommend really starting, actually. Um but yeah, we're in Melbourne, so um, we're hoping to get our tables in retailers in other states. We have some, one in Sydney and we're getting one in Queensland already. Um, but yeah, if you're in Melbourne or Victoria, you can come see, you can even come here and test the tables out. So, um, you can find us everywhere. <laughs> and we ship Australia-wide. Fantastic. Yeah. And what would you say it is about your tables that you changed to suit you that you make think it that you think <laughs> makes them stand out i mean one thing that is underrated i think is the fact we offer wider borders on the table like most tables overseas or they're all overseas so kind of the only one in australia 
small little um, carpenters, but uh, they all have one thin border width. And when we first made our table, I was like, I want a fat border so I can sit my, you know, Twilight Imperium player boards or, you know, Agricola player board stuff on the side and have the main board in the middle. So it feels really, really clean. That's one thing that sets us apart, but also we just, um, we make them in like real solid Australian timber as well. Like there's no staining happening. Um, so it's very, you know, it's bespoke, you know, <laughs> it's very, very good, very good quality is, is kind of what we focus on. I think one thing that makes the table so great or Gameway, you know, so successful is that we work really closely with um, our carpenter who knows furniture making and design so well and he's so passionate about it. And then, you know, particularly Jim, he, he has the passion and the love of board games and it just works so nicely um, to, to create this really nice product that is both functional and um, and so exciting to play on. Like it really does elevate your experience of playing and yeah. Sorry, I don't no, hear any like. <laughs> oh sounds. my goodness, and she's so cute. For those listening at home, the cutest Frenchie in the world. Do you want to say anything oh. about the table? Yeah. Say hello, Jackie. <laughs> Bit of a lick of the microphone, always a good sign. Yeah, just a little lick. That'll be really good for It's audio. been so lovely chatting with you guys today. I'm a massive fan of your tables. I can't wait to get one for myself. Definitely, everyone, you need to check out Gameway Tables. They are absolutely fantastic. And thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. And thank we'll you. see you at the board game market. Uh, I don't know if this is coming up before or after that, but um, good we'll point. See you yes, the Melbourne board game market. Yeah. So. If you really do want to check the tables out, you can see these guys at the Melbourne Board Game Market. So now for our final thoughts on Agricola. Obviously, Karen, I'm pretty sure we know what yours are, but if you want to sum it up for us. Mm. So Agricola is my favourite game. I never tire of it. But these days um, I play it, and I don't play it as often as you think, so I might play it now three or four times a year at conventions and I like it because I know it. I don't have to learn anything and I'm always happy to teach it. If you see me anywhere, I will always teach Agricola, anyone who wants to learn it. And how about yourself, Chris? Well, I love it to bits as a game already. I think I love both Agricola and Caverna. Caverna has a special place in my heart because it was the first Juve Rosenberg game I discovered and played. Um, it's the first game with so many bits in it that I ever played. It's not the first game with so many bits in I ever owned. I owned the old Eagle Griffin version of Civilization, took it out of the box, realised I hated it, and didn't actually ever play it properly and then sold it. But it was the first game with an absurd amount of bits that I played and loved. And my wife loved it as well. So that suddenly meant there was a connection there we could grow. Um, I think, though, for me, I prefer Agricola because the... The variety that those cards bring, um, that kind of almost playfulness that says, right, I've got to improvise a strategy based upon what I've got in front of me, and that changes. It's not all in my control, right, is is something that plays to what I enjoy in the game. You know, it throws that little bit of a challenge, a little bit of a curveball, while still you know, having sort of an even contest. It's a good, a good balance between the stuff you're doing yourself and the stuff you're competing over. So for me... I actually 
prefer Agricola, but I think I'll end up playing more Caverna. As I've, as I've already said, I think that's how, how it will how it will end up going. But um, Agricola is, is sort of a voyage of infinite discovery. And of course, there's all the expansion decks, and I've not even got anywhere near those yet. Jen, what do you think? I'm going to be Switzerland. 100% Switzerland. I like both of them for their different merits. I think if um, I want to play a game that I know is going to take a little longer and be a little bit more of a challenge and I'm in a really competitive mode, I'm going for Agricola absolutely every time. If I'm chilling out and just wanting to play something a little bit fun and not quite as competitive, I'll go for Caverna. I think I need to go get myself a copy of Caverna now (laughs) or just play with yourself and Joe all the time, Chris, because I'm always happy to do that as well. But I think both of them have really good parts. Both of them have merit. I completely agree with Karen. I think that Caverna has its audience and it's really good for some people. Agricola has its audience and it's good for others. So try both of them and then continue with the one that you prefer the most. Or if you like me, play both. The world is your oyster. You you have the opportunity to choose to play both at different times. And if you find that both of them are just too simple and too lacking in decision-making space <laughs> for you and don't have enough bits... Get yourself a copy of A Feast for Odin and its expansion and try that. <laughs> it's another different game altogether. <laughs> it is. <that>. Absolutely. <laughs> now, we do have a couple of questions we always ask our guests. So, obviously, Karen, we know that Agricola is your favourite game. What would you say would be your next favourite game? Oh, it depends what mood I'm in. Like when I meet up with friends at a con, we know we're playing Agricola. They love Agricola too. And then we often play something else that we all like. But um, his other games I love are Aura at Labora. I love that game. And I really love The Colonists, which is an eight-hour game, which is not your favorite. I haven't played either of those. You know, if you ever want to spend a day playing The Colonists, um, I'm your person. It's uh, it's like playing four two-hour games back-to-back. That's what it feels like. Oh, my goodness. It's really good. It's really good. The day goes and you don't even realise it. Well, definitely a couple of games I'll have to look up myself because I don't know either of them. And the other question is, what is your favourite household item? I love scissors. I love scissors. <laughs> I can't get enough of scissors. I love scissors as well and we have, um, (laughs) as a crafter, we have a jar of scissors in my craft room and they are colour-coded as to which scissors are paper scissors and which scissors are fabric scissors. And I've got a little funny story for you guys. I was in a video chat with some fabric-making friends the other night and her husband walked into her craft room, picked up her scissors (laughs) off of her cutting table and had a package in his hand and he went to cut. <laughs> and instinctually, without even thinking about it, I just yelled, something better not be fabric scissors, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone that was in the chat absolutely burst out laughing. And if anyone listening is a, a sewer, they'll completely yeah. understand what I'm talking about. There's a very perplexed look on Chris's face like now, like what's the difference? You don't cut paper with fabric scissors. 
you just don't do it because they don't stay sharp. Paper blunt scissors, and which is why you know rock paper scissors. You know, oh, actually no, paper doesn't. Paper should blunt scissors than rock paper scissors. <laughs> it's not good. But yeah, we all had a very good giggle over that. What we do need is basically the um, is just rock paper scissors, but you can pull out the fabric scissors. It's like a way of being able <laughs> yes. to sort of defeat the mechanism and to win the game. There was um, were you aware that there was a campaign on Kickstarter last year for rock paper scissors deluxe, um, oh. and uh, it was with a solo mode by David Turtsey with a Watch It Played uh, video by uh, by Rodney Smith. But it was satirical joke set up to from the Dragon's Tomb satire uh, channel. And in fact, there's an absolutely brilliant piece that was done uh, for the Dragon's Tomb. If you look at the Dragon's Tomb on YouTube, uh, I'll give this a shout out, that is a review of everyone's favourite gang that went around a whole bunch of board game reviewers. Didn't reach everyone, but went out and got fairly, fairly, fairly wide, um, pulled the people talking about Favourite games that we were definitely never heard of and may, may or may not actually exist, uh, but it's hilarious. But they put this campaign on, which had a real live thing. You would have got this real live Rock, Paper, Scissors Deluxe thing. But unfortunately, it didn't quite fund, which is a real shame because it looked really, really, really funny. That um, is so but, but the funny. Dragon's Tomb is still going. So that, that's, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us tonight. It was absolutely lovely chatting with you and learning more about you, more about Agricola, having a great conversation about which is the better game and uh, deciding they're both different. Find me at a con and, uh, and come and ask me if you want to play Agricola like most other people do. Are you the Agricola person? I'll go, yes, come and join. That's that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. And uh, alternatively, look up Karen on BGG if you want a comprehensive list of all the Agricola expansions. And you can look up a collection. That's a quick way to access it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Alternatively, you can just go and click the expansions list and just ignore that when they repeat the same thing five times over because there's different countries' versions and reprinting. So that is, I, I now know that if I want to get the full, complete Agricola set, I know where to look for a checklist. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you know all know where to find our social media information at this point. So our Facebook is linked below. Our Instagram is linked below. Our website is melbournemeeples.org.au. Please come and join us. We would love to see you both on our Facebook and our Instagram pages. We love questions. We love feedback. And we hope you all enjoyed this episode of the show. Have a fantastic time. <laughs>